This is an ABC podcast. Beverly? Beverly! Oh God, she's out like a light. Wake up! We have a podcast to record. <gasps> Did someone say podcast? I'm awake! though. What day is this? Where am I? Is it over? Oh God, she watched the entire Oscars broadcast and it sent her into a full blackout coma. Stop everything. What the hell happened? Stop everything. It's time to stop, drop and digest the week in pop culture with Benjamin Law. Hello, I guess, Benjamin Law. You know, we're just acting in the opener, acting. You don't actually have to hit me so hard. I condemn violence. So should you. Australia says no and so does stop everything. But I am also committed to my craft. It's called method acting when it comes to radio. But Beverly, help me out here. You watched the full Oscars broadcast. That's what sent you into this full blackout coma because that is a long, long show to absorb. Why is everyone so elated and emotional over the outcome of the Oscars this year. All right, you're using some strong language there. First of all, watched is a strong word. <laughs> you absorbed by osmosis. I was, it was on. I was in the same room. I did lots of things while they were on. It seeped into your pores. You were ambiently aware of the Oscars. Nobody should actually sit in front of a screen and fully give all of their concentration to the Oscars. Yeah, you'll have a medical not, episode like you did. No one should do that. It's not good for your heart rate. You might die. <laughs> So, okay, I had the Oscars full broadcast on in my consciousness, but look what it did to me. It's a health hazard. And then elated. See, this is where the tension for me is because it was a very boring broadcast and we should talk about the pros and cons of a boring broadcast because I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing considering what happened last year. So to say elated is hard. It's more like you're sleeping, you're in a coma, and then every once in a while someone comes in and blasts an air horn, you wake up, and you're like, oh, yeah, and then you fall asleep again. And that happens about six or seven times. So it's highs and lows. I'm not saying you were necessarily elated as you were, <laughs> as you're describing that reaction, but there was a lot of elation in the room. When you say it was a bit of a boring broadcast, I saw a lot of the commentary out there that said if last year's binfire of a broadcast. Think of what happened between Chris Rock, Will Smith, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock on stage. If that was like one of the lowest points of Oscars history, this year they've said it was the Biden presidency of Oscars. Uncle Joe's Oscars. <laughs> it's just straightforward, safe, a bit of a reprieve, nothing to necessarily get excited about, but we're back on form and you can kind of sleepwalk your way through it, if you like. It was a very comfortable and safe Jimmy Kimmel-hosted show. And I think that that is, like you say, a reprieve, because I think for a long time, the Oscars have suffered from this crisis of, they're so boring, they need to be more interesting. And they've introduced all sorts of wacky hosting and non-hosting situations to try to respond to that. But I think now we understand that the Oscars are boring, and we must accept 
the Oscars on their level as they are. Accept the Oscars as their whole self. Boring and bloated. But think about when the Oscars actually does get interesting. It's usually because there's a massive production mistake or there's a bin fire. Bin fire in the case of Chris Rock and Will Smith or a production mistake like reading out the wrong best picture winner, right? La la land! (laughs) But this year, we've got a full sweep. When it comes to our personal preferences, Beverly, let's talk about us as emotional beings, but Mm -hmm. also as viewers of the arts and crafts of the motion picture sciences. Here, we've got essentially what we wanted, right? Jimmy Kimmel's hosting was safe, mild. He did a few jokes. I'm not going to condemn him for that. He actually got the assignment and he delivered on the assignment. So I'm not saying that Jimmy Kimmel did a bad job at all. He did the right good thing in that place. What I think I feel overall about the Oscars is relief and also happiness. Yeah. Because it was the least, like, I'm going to use double negatives here. So it was the least... Or is it the most undisappointing? It was either the most... You want to say it was the least bad something. (laughs) It was the most undisappointing Oscars I have ever watched. Yeah. Am I saying it correctly? Do you understand what I mean? I think you're right. And after several years of like major kind of... Some people would say disappointments. Other people would say mild bafflement. I mean, think of the year Green Book Mm -hmm. won the best picture. Think of the year when... I mean, let's go even further back. Crash winning above Brokeback Mountain. Who even talks about Crash anymore, for instance? You know? Thank goodness Top Gun Maverick did not win Best Picture, <laughs> or we would be in a different emotional state. We would be having a very different conversation. That's right a now. very, very different multiverse. And one that exists out there. You know, that actually happened. Trump won the presidency in one multiverse. We live in that multiverse. And in another multiverse, Top Gun Maverick actually did win Best Picture at the Oscars. But when it comes to everything, everywhere, all at once, It does a clean sweep. And I have to say, Beverly, when I was (laughs) not watching the Oscars, but following the Oscars and watching highlights from the back of an interstate bus between Canberra and Sydney, that's how I enjoyed this event. When I saw Kihi Kwan had actually won his Best Supporting Actor Oscar, and that was a complete shoe-in, really. Like, we knew that was going to happen, and it happened early in the awards ceremony. But when he just says... With such deep emotion, he's overwhelmed and he just says, Mom, I won an Oscar, you know, in that inflection as well for his mother. You've got Kihi Kwan, whose mother is in her 80s. They spent a year in a Hong Kong refugee camp coming from Vietnam to America. You know, he was a child actor, spent decades in the wilderness, comes back with this first major role and he wins an Oscar. How can you not be emotional for him? The Everything Everywhere All at Once winners, I think, were the emotional heart of that broadcast. Of course, there were disappointments, though. I mean, I wish that we could give Oscars to Angela Bassett and Stephanie Sue alongside Jamie Lee Curtis. I love all three of them so much. Can we talk about that category? So Jamie Lee Curtis wins Best Supporting Actress which is incredible. Her role in Everything Everywhere All at Once, incredible. Deirdre Bo Beardry, the best cinema name ever. Fantastic. And the way that she occupies a villain, love interest, you know, just dour IRS agent, all of those things are so incredible. And for an actor like Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, we don't think of her as Oscar-winning performer. But then you watch as that award category is announced, and a lot was made of the fact that Angela Bassett just looked devastated. And for this year, when it's such a groundbreaking year for Asian performers, Asian American performers, Asian American films, 
you also have to hold in simultaneous truth that it was a really painful year for black performers and especially women black performers who were overlooked when it came to films like Till, The, the Woman, Woman King. King, and Angela Bassett. This award would have meant a lot to her if she'd won, and she didn't hide her disappointment. She looked really sad. Yeah, because thinking about it, when is this another role like that Queen Ramonda going to come along for Angela Bassett, right? So these are sometimes once-in-a-lifetime roles, just like Evelyn Wang in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is Michelle Yeoh's role of a lifetime. And Stephanie Sue, who did such an incredible job as Joy and Jobu, being nominated alongside Jamie Lee Curtis every step of the way and every step of the way not winning is so bittersweet. She's like the MVP on the team. When there's everybody is an MVP, what do you do when there's only one award? And Jamie Lee Curtis is the more establishment Hollywood figure. And I think the Academy would tend to say, well, Jamie Lee, sometimes these awards are not just only for the role, but for their lifetime it's a body, body of, work. of work, right? Mm-hmm. I can't feel too bad for Stephanie Sue in some ways. Like I hear what you're saying, but on the other hand, she's young. This is her first major role in Hollywood. We haven't really known or seen Stephanie Sue before Everything Everywhere All at Once. On her first day on set, she said she looked around and she's just like, where have I landed? I'm opposite Michelle Yeoh in this film, this legend. So when Stephanie Sue sees Jamie Lee Curtis winning and she gets up and she's elated, when she's like applauding everyone else, when she's got tears rolling down her eyes, like that's genuine. I don't think she's performing. She is just grateful to be in this multiverse right now. And she's young. She's got many, many years to become an Oscar winner. And right now at this age, she's already an Oscar nominee. She'd be thrilled. It is an amazing ride to be on. And I think she was all of our avatar of emotion as well. Like her face looking at Michelle Yeoh in that cast shot where they gather around her for her best actress win the look of joy, you know, it seems a bit cheesy and maybe I'm buying into it, but the Everything Everywhere All at Once cast and the creatives, they seem to be very bonded. They actually made this film years ago, mm. but they all still cheer each other on. And if you listen to any companion podcasts, which I do, they talk about how they had a lot of heart together and Kiki Kwan and his wife Echo really being like the life and soul and everybody crying and cheering. So it's kind of fantastic to see that in Hollywood because it's the industrial complex. You don't often see that. And I think tying into that is that Everything Everywhere All at Once is an A24 film. A24 actually, with the combined powers of The Whale and Everything Everywhere Mm. All at Once, won all of the major awards and all of the acting categories, screenplay, director, best picture. It's huge. And I think one of the funniest tweets that I've seen come out of the Oscars is like, Everybody loves Brendan Fraser and everybody hates the whale. That's really, really true. So many people despise that film for what they see as quite a sadistic journey. Look, in all kind of transparency, I haven't seen the film, but the commentary around it is quite barbed. But Brendan Fraser also has this remarkable Hollywood comeback story. And when you think of him and Kihi Kwan 
together. They've actually been in films together. They Encino were, Man. They were in Encino Man back in the day when Brendan Fraser was at his, like, hunk peak of mm-hmm. Hollywood. They both had breaks from Hollywood. Brendan Fraser, because he was going through a lot of grief, mental health issues, he uh, was allegedly sexually assaulted within the Hollywood sphere as well. He needed to take a big break. Kihi Kwan was just overlooked and mm-hmm. didn't get the roles. And here they both are being able to celebrate the moment Having all those four winners on stage with Michelle Yeoh being the first Asian performer to win Best Actress, that's kind of an amazing clean sweep, right? Yeah. I mean, the burst of emotion that I had when Michelle Yeoh won and the tears that sprang to the corner of my eyes, it's just, you know, we got to take a moment. There's a lot of debate around, are these award shows, do they have merit? Are they an accurate representation of what's good in Hollywood, of artistic merit? And look... Award shows are deeply problematic, but when they are the epicenter of everything in this huge industrial complex and they are recognizing people like Michelle Yeoh, like Kihi Kwan, to a certain extent Brendan Fraser as well, Jamie Lee Curtis, there is a shift and you cannot dismiss that shift. It is actually important. They're problematic as all get at these award ceremonies, but they're problematic because we time and again see them doing the wrong thing. So when they actually do the right thing, you think, oh my gosh, is this going to be okay? Have they actually righted their ship? When it comes to the speeches, those everything, everywhere, all at once, cast and creatives, look, they really do love their mommies, don't they, Benjamin Law? And the Oscar goes to... Thank you. Thank you. Uh, My mom is 84 years old, and she's at home watching. Mom, I just want an Oscar. And the Oscar goes to Michelle Yeoh. This is proof that dreams dream big and dreams do come true. And ladies, don't let anybody tell you you are ever past your prime. Never give up. I have to dedicate this to my mom, all the moms in the world, because they are really the superheroes. And without them, none of us will be here tonight. And... The Oscar goes to Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheiner. Oh my God. Thank you, sir. Uh, our, our fellow nominees, you guys are our heroes. This is weird. Um, uh, this, we want to dedicate this to the mommies, all the mommies of the world, to our moms. I accept your dedication, Daniels. Thank you for including me in your Oscars win and all of the mommies. We appreciate you, young nice boys. <laughs> there was that great footage of Michelle Yeoh's mom in Malaysia in her 80s as well, like seeing her daughter win. And, you know, that's just a moment for her, but also a moment for a nation, also a moment for a continent full of people, the diaspora and beyond. And of course, they're dedicating these awards to their moms, one, because they love them, but secondly, think of what that film is. It is about a mother's quest. She will go through every universe to ensure that her daughter is protected and safe. Mm. And that is so much the mother's story, but also the migrant mother's story when you think about it. You will go through every universe. You will check out every possibility. You will upend your entire life to ensure that 
your children are safe and your children end up thinking for the rest of their lives, what could my life have been if my parent didn't make that choice? That is the heart of what that incredible kind of batshit insane film is all about. You know, we talk about hot dog fingers, we talk about googly eyes, we talk about sentient rocks trying to communicate in that film. That's all kind of like fun and games. But the core of that film is this immigrant parenting love story. And that's why they're dedicating those speeches to their moms. It's beautiful. I just want to play one more because I feel like in particular, this like just really hits me in the feelings. I don't know if I can get through this without crying. (laughs) But you know, Daniel Kwan is Taiwanese and Jonathan Wong, the producer of Everything Everywhere All at Once, his father is Taiwanese. And we don't get mentioned very much ever mm. in the world unless it's to talk about war with China. Let me take a breath. We can hold hands. We're in the same studio today. Why don't we reach over, over the monitors? Holding hands on our podcast. <laughs> My mask is going to get Oh, you poor thing. Anyway, I'm, ac- I'm actually, I'm getting look, weirdly emotional. Let's, I'm going to play the audio and recover my emotions. My is Taiwanese. So, yeah. So his, my, my, my dad is also Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese, and uh, he passed away before he could see this movie, but the movie's dedicated to him. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the, uh, the joke about Rakakuni is very much inspired by my dad. He was a movie buff in the most Taiwanese dad way, where he would always get movie titles wrong. So uh, this movie is very much uh, a love song to our Taiwanese parents, but also Southern parents, because there's a universal there is a universal truth to our parents. And even though it is a, about an immigrant story, there is something very universal about our parents. Oh, we dedicate this episode of Stop Everything to Our Parents. We're having an, an emotional moment there because. What does every every good Asian kid want to do? They want to achieve. They want, they want to win an Oscar for their parents. Oh <laughs> it is, really is true. Um, oh, my goodness. So, look, Everything Everywhere All at Once is not a movie for everyone. I remember when I went to the preview screening, you know, these preview screenings for the media, only a few people go in and we watch this movie in the tiny cinema together, and then we get up and leave. And they're funny experiences because there's only a few people in the room. So when I was watching Everything Everywhere All at Once, the other people in the room probably hate me because I'm quite loud. I Mm. react. I laugh. And then at the end of it, a gentleman who was in the room with me, an older white man, stood up and looked at me. And his first question to me was, can you explain the symbolism of the bagel? (laughs) And... I thought, wow, you know, it's so interesting that we can have such different experiences. And I found myself trying to explain to him the symbolism of the bagel. And I said, well, it's an everything bagel. It's a movie called Everything Everywhere. This is all at like once. a recurring motif in the yeah. film, and it's kind of representing like the black hole of the universe collapsing into this bagel. Yeah, so, in my attempt to be the nice person and give him an answer, I, I think I tried to cobble together some kind of connection between the everything bagel and the title of the film in the multiverse. But maybe a bagel is just a bagel. Mm. Sometimes it just is. But it, I think it was crystallizing that. This is not a movie for everybody. It can be divisive. So, for example, in The Guardian. Oh, I I remember this review. Yeah, Peter Bradshaw, the film critic. The headline for this review is Everything Everywhere All at Once, Nothing Nowhere Over a Long Period of Time, which is funny and savage. 
two-star review. And one of the lines is, he described this film as disconcerting, frantically hyperactive and self-admiring, and yet strangely laborious, dull, Mm. and overdetermined, never letting up for a single second to let us care about or indeed believe in any of its characters. That's Peter Bradshaw's take. Meanwhile, I'm crying about the producer's speech backstage at the Oscars. Maybe this is a corrective for all of those years where a film that just is actually self-important and does scream Oscar wins that doesn't emotionally resonate for people like you and me. Do you know what I mean? Like, his whole thing is like, this film is not for me, I'm going to give it two stars. And I'm like, well, there are so many years where films have won the best picture where I'm like, that's definitely not for me. And when you think about everything everywhere all at once, I think about what it must have been like to even been on set making that film. Jamie Lee Curtis has hot dog fingers, you know, an actor in her 60s going, what? she's probably thinking, what am I doing? Michelle Yeoh has talked about the sequence where she has to do kung fu with sex toys, asking herself, where have I found myself? (laughs) She was probably asking herself, is this the end of my career? And it's absolutely not. I think this is a really delightful multiverse in which we've found ourselves, where a film like this, about the immigrant story, about parental love that features hot dog fingers and sex toys, won the Best Picture Oscar. That's very unlikely. It's also the multiverse in the film where Michelle Yeoh is the film star, Evelyn Wang, and Ki Ki Kwan Waymond is the dashing as all get out guy in the tuxedo and they get to be together. It's like they're actually recreating footage from the film itself, like where they win Oscars on the main stage in Hollywood. I just want to take a moment to appreciate Ki Hee Kwan in a tuxedo. That man is so handsome. His <laughs> hair is so beautifully... Like, he is fantastic. What's really incredible is that these three people, Michelle Yeoh, Ki Hee Kwan, Stephanie Su, they're about to start together in another film. Another multiverse opens itself. To our moms, uh, specifically my mom and dad, Ken and Becky, thank you for not squashing my creativity when I was making really disturbing horror films or really perverted comedy films or dressing in drag as a kid, which is a threat to nobody. Uh, And uh, yeah, thank you to everybody who worked on our movie. Um, I know every director agrees with me when I say a director is nothing without their incredible cast and crew. This is my family, my friends. Um, If our movie has greatness and genius, it is only because they have greatness and genius flowing through their hearts and souls and minds, and they gave that to us, to our, uh, they gave that precious gift to our film. Uh, The world is opening up to the fact that uh, genius does not stem from individuals like us on stage, but rather genius emerges from the collective. Ben, this feels like the perfect time to revisit our interview with the now Academy Award winning screenwriters and directors of the best picture of 2023, the Daniels, otherwise known as Daniel Scheinert and Daniel Kwan. Let's go. Daniels, welcome to Stop Everything. Thank you so much for having us. My name is Daniel Kwan, so you guys can recognize my voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is Daniel Scheinert's voice. It's yeah. uh, a little deeper, and I enunciate a little better. <laughs> oh, you've both done radio before. Thank you for the clarity. Hey, everything, everywhere, all at once, delivers what the title promises. It's a multiverse movie that takes risks with basically every aspect of movie making. I want to start with you, Daniel Kwan. What was the seed of this movie and this story? 
We often say that there was a couple of seeds that collided, and that's usually when we know we were onto something special and we're going to be willing to commit to the idea. And so the first seed was just the multiverse verse jumping idea, this idea that you can connect with another version of yourself and absorb all of their talents, but unfortunately you also get all of their neuroses or emotional baggage and history. And so we thought that was a really cool duality. Every time you use this power to become a superhuman, you also are forced to deal with like philosophical existential stuff. I was like, that's a good combo. But that wasn't enough. And then the next thing was the fact that I was at a place where I was ready to put myself in the film and put specifically my family into the film. And we realized, oh, the immigrant story is perfect for the multiverse just because, you know, so much of it is about what if. What if I had stayed? What if I moved somewhere else? What if I didn't have kids? There's so much potential and regret in that kind of narrative, and that's perfect for the multiverse. So that's the the second seed. And And the last one was like that if we were going to do a multiverse thing, we were trying to decide how many would we put in there, how to keep the concept within like a reasonable box for audiences. And then we were came with the idea of like, what if we don't do that? What if we go too <laughs> far? And that's the point, you know? Specifically, how can we take it too far, take it to infinity, take it to this very nihilistic place and still bring us back put us back on track, make the audience feel like they've been hugged by the end of this chaos. And mm-hmm. like spoiler, yeah. <laughs> our movie hugs you. Yeah, exactly. Aww. It's one big chaotic <laughs> hug. That's a good spoiler. Now Daniels, in another universe, it's totally possible that Jackie Chan would have been the lead in this film. Mm. In our universe, I'm very happy that it's Michelle Yeoh who plays the lead Evelyn Wong. Mm-hmm. Who is the same name as my older sister. So that was an interesting experience wow. for me. First and last name? <laughs> yes. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, so that trailer made the rounds of our siblings group chat. <laughs> my thought watching the film was, there is no one else for me who can play this role except Michelle Yeoh. But knowing that you first wanted Jackie Chan, what's your reflection in hindsight? How did this recasting and rewriting for a female lead guide you to different places in the film. One thing that's important to clarify is that Michelle Yeoh was always going to be in the film in our heads. She was actually just going to play the Waymond part, the husband. So she was going to be the one doing the fanny pack fight and all those kind of things. And so we obviously love Michelle Yeoh and so we thought she would fit into this family dynamic. But as we realized that Jackie Chan was starting to feel potentially just unattainable for what we were doing, like we started to wonder, okay, who would be our second choice in case it didn't work out? And the only other person we could think of was right there in the family, Michelle Yeoh. And so as we did the thought experiment of flipping it and giving her the main role, the whole thing blossomed because, you know, you guys have Asian moms. You know what they're like. and Some of them. Some of them. Not all of them. Yeah. It's just so funny because... Not all moms. Not all moms. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. Uh, (laughs) But... It has brought this movie to life in a way that didn't work with a guy. You know, I think Chinese mothers specifically, from my experience, are the ones who kind of hold everything together. They are constantly pulling all these obstacles. They're just juggling so many balls in the air constantly. And to put that kind of person in the middle of a movie about the multiverse just made it so funny and so specific. And ultimately, you know, if you watch the movie, you'll see ultimately really heartbreaking and beautiful and and personal. And if you read the first draft, you'd be like, oh, wow, it's also much better of a script. Yeah, the script became so much better. I was just thinking that on the other side, that that rewrite is the first time that the character of Waymond came to life. And suddenly this dopey husband who's a beta male pushover 
was like this other character that we're suddenly like way more interested in and relate to <laughs> ourselves, you know? And so it, it was just part of the process and we're so lucky. We're used to seeing Michelle Yeoh in so many kind of roles, in so many kind of archetypes, right? The strong kung fu woman, the glamorous matriarch from Crazy Rich Asians. We are not used to seeing her play a frazzled, frumpy, beleaguered middle-aged woman, in this case working in a laundromat, managing a laundromat, as well as the myriad other versions I just talked about, also on screen too. I'm curious, Jackie Chan wasn't quite right for this role. Michelle Yeoh obviously is, but how do you convince her to do something so audacious as playing this version of her and all the myriad other versions of her? The moment we met her, we realized she's so much more approachable and funny and weird than audiences know. You know, if you've watched Crouching Tiger or Crazy Rich Asians, you have a different idea of, you know, what she's going to be like. You know, she's not frumpy at all in real life. She's still intimidatingly stunning, but she is like so vulnerable and open she and treated us like family the moment we sat down with her for a breakfast like right. it was very much like auntie vibes from her and like we were prepared to have to fight for her and woo her and convince her and none of that was necessary and i think part of it is just because she's the kind of person who has been dying to experiment and play and no one has been giving her those opportunities and we found out more recently how meaningful it was for her to finally be given that opportunity. You know, after the premiere, she finally, like, admitted, like, this is the first time someone trusted her with these kind of roles, and she was really thankful for it. And obviously, when you watch the movie, she killed it. Like, mm -hmm. this is easily one of the most interesting roles she's ever been in, but also she it's probably one of the best performances she's ever given all of us. Fans. The world, yeah. Yeah, the range on display is phenomenal. I kind of think the same thing can be said of someone like Jamie Lee Curtis and her character, the IRS auditor, Deirdre, Bo Beardra. Nice name. <laughs> Don't um, say it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> what was the cast's overall attitude in taking on these characters, which stretched their usual celebrity persona? When we're casting, it's my favorite thing to do. I'm not interested in giving an actor a part that's like a very mild variation of what they're known for. And so it's searching for that sweet spot. And sometimes it's up to the actor, you know, like you share the script with them and if it resonates with them, then that's a good sign. And so that's kind of what happened with Jamie as well. She read it and was like, oh, I'm hungry for something strange like this. But she also just wanted to hang out with Michelle. So that, that helped a lot. Was, yeah. She was like, she's like, oh, I get to work with Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> and it was your artistic partners. You share a name. You're known as a collective noun. How do you navigate that close working relationship? And do you generally tend to think as one unit or do you tend to complement each other? I joke that like sometimes I'll watch movies about like marriages, you know, and like like married couples trying to like figure out their dynamic. And I'm like, it doesn't remind me of my partner. It reminds me of Dan and I. <laughs> I like, it's very much a creative marriage and it's like we have different strengths and we argue it out and we're not one brain, but that is better. Yeah, there was this fantastic, I believe, New Yorker article uh -huh. about collaboration. Specifically, they're focusing on these two 
core programmers for Google at the very beginning, and they were a partner, the duoship. And mm -hmm. uh, the article goes in depth on their relationship, but then specifically they go through a bunch of duos throughout history. And and one of the things that struck me that it was kind of fun to read about it without reading about ourselves, you know, kind of taking us, ourselves out of the equation. They talk about how collaborations and specifically duos are one of the best ways to create innovation because movies are impossible to do regardless of who you are or how many people are directing it. And, you know, you're just fighting against entropy. You're fighting against inertia. And so to experiment on top of that is asking so much for most people, which is why when you look at things like, you know, Lord and Miller's work is so inventive. It's because you're bouncing ideas off of each other at a much faster pace, which means you get to evolve beyond what you think a normal movie would do. Same with the Wachowskis when they did The Matrix, you know, mm -hmm. that was mind-blowing. Um, and then sometimes it's just too many ideas. You have to step away and work some late nights and get your project under control because... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but that article, they talk about how like almost all Nobel Prizes go to teams these days and that like there's something about that that can work so well. Yeah. So we deserve the Nobel Prize in <laughs> movie making, sci-fi movie comedies. <laughs> you heard it here first, starting our campaign. <laughs> <laughs> For your consideration, Nobel Academy. Ben and I, we were talking about this film and we both said we felt quite triggered seeing that cluttered interior of the Wang family home. Like, that hit hard, that hit deep. We had feelings. You don't often see that in a feature film, the detail. And please tell us, maybe I'm on the wrong track. I think I'm on the right track. Have you drawn from personal experience there? And this specific representation of the home, why was it so important to you? Because I feel like it was such a huge part of this film. Oh my God. This is the first time I've been asked about that. But every time I see it, because we've watched this movie so many times, every time I watch it, I'm just like immediately transported back to my grandparents' house. They bought a place in Brooklyn many, many years ago. There's something about the way that, and this is true for all immigrants, the way we collect things as if it might be the last time we get to, as if we might end up having to lose it all or say goodbye to it all. And that accumulation that happens... It's overwhelming as a kid because you go in and you don't realize why you feel cramped and, like I said, overwhelmed. And now as an adult, I look around at all the pictures. And I'm like, holy crap, everywhere we sat, we were surrounded by things. You know, I'm hoping people like yourselves will pause it and like really get to dissect it one day. But it's a random arrangement of, you know, of course, you get the Chinese books and the Chinese opera. You, but then you also get the phone books from the local Chinatown grocery store and the calendars. And then you get like troll dolls. The staircase really did it for me. The staircase. I mean, exactly. It's like my grandfather's the apartment was right above the laundromat. And so that was how my grandparents interfaced with the rest of America, if that makes sense. They would mm. they would kind of transition between this liminal space of that staircase, just going from, this is my apartment where we're still very much rooted in our traditions, and then trying to transition back into the laundromat, which is very much, uh, you know, Western-facing. I had someone on, on the A24 team who also comes from an immigrant family told me that stairwell is so stressful because... There's a timer ticking down for how long you can have this conversation before you lose your parent, <laughs> before they get sucked away back into the real world. And so watching her chase her mother to trying to have this very important conversation before boom, we're back into the this world that no longer wants to leave space or room for that kind of conversation was really beautiful for me to hear because it wasn't necessarily the intention at the time, but I'm like, yes, 100%. That is what this existence feels like. We're moving between worlds 
up and down the stairs. Yeah, it's clutter. Anyways, I could talk about this forever. That's very much a parallel of universe jumping, if you think about it. The universe of the home to the universe of the laundromat. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'll talk just a little to say our set decorator, Kelsey, killed it. And Dan gave her photos of his grandpa's apartment, and she worked so hard. And rightfully, she's so proud of just like, how much can you fit in here? This can't feel like a set that got decorated from Ikea. It has to feel lived in. Yeah, and so we sent her pictures, and she also hired a bunch of very talented Asian Americans within the industry as well to kind of fill out the team. And together, they just made this perfect snapshot of all of our childhoods, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know when a set director has really pulled it off, when it looks so real, because that's a set that I'll be talking about with my therapist soon enough, I'm pretty sure. Oh, my God. Um, You know, that contrast in the film between this kind of crowdy, full of stuff, shabby family home, and then being kick-ass fighters across multiverses. When I came out of the film, I actually talked to Beverly, and I said, you know what I love about this film it kind of marries together two visions of Asian diasporas that we've seen in cinema. We've got the sad, poignant migrant family that you see in cinema a lot, and you see kick-ass kung fu heroes too. Is there a meta-commentary about the representation of these families that you wanted to say there? Early on in our process, I was just writing what I knew. And so I put them in the laundromat, you know, and like, of course, my dad had a fanny pack that he brought everywhere. So I was like, a fanny pack fight, all these things. Oh, of course, it's a kung fu movie. That was what me and my family would watch every single weekend was just kung fu movies from Hong Kong that were bootlegged, you know. And we got a comment early on from someone that was like, do we need another story about a laundromat owner? It kind of struck me because I was like, yes, I hear what you're saying. But also, this is my story. And so I exist in this weird place where I check off all the boxes of stereotypes, and yet (laughs) I want to tell those stories. And so both consciously and unconsciously, we created something where every single time there was a stereotype, we wanted to blow it up. Or complicate it at Complicate it, or just like make you think about it twice every time you saw the stereotype in the real world, you know? So the fanny pack is a good example of that. It's like, of course, my dad and maybe both of your dads, like every time we went to Disney World or wherever, there would be a fanny pack and the camera around the neck, you know? It's like kind of like uncomfortable to talk about now, but like that was real, you know, and that's why it became the stereotype. And so we're like, what if the fanny pack becomes this empowering thing? And so, and it, and it just opened up things, and it was so fun to watch this thing that used to be a source of derision or whatever mm. become the powerful weapon that like no one was expecting. And I think that's a good metaphor for the whole movie. You see Michelle's character, Evelyn, and you're like, this is going to be a, an immigrant story about our cultures clashing, which at this point, you know, we've seen so many of those. And then for it to become what it does become, I think people will think twice about complaining about there being too many stories about immigrants, you know, whatever, the immigrant experience. Yeah, we're just getting started. Yeah, exactly. We're just oh, getting yeah. started. Exactly. This is, this is just the beginning. Just a code switch. Fanny pack in Australia, we call them bum bags. Bum bags. Uh, right. So that's for the Australian listeners. So much stuff happens in this movie. You know, it's got everything. Rakakuni, family reconciliation, hugs. Now, given the title and the concept, that makes sense. But you alluded to this earlier. I'd love to hear more about how you edit and how you weigh up the risk of putting in too much for the audience. Mm. A huge part of our process is editing, whether that's editing the screenplay or editing the footage, because we have too many ideas. (laughs) In the screenwriting process, we're constantly comparing our multiverse ideas against it's a story of a family. And so anything that didn't complement or push the story of the family forward, no matter how much we loved it, fell by the wayside. 
And then the same thing when we were editing the movie, there's some darlings, but like if it didn't work for this family story moving forward, then it was like, okay, then I guess Spaghetti Baby Noodle Boy, the talking piece of macaroni isn't going to be in the movie, even though we shot it. (laughs) I think even though this seems like there's a lot in the movie, we do have a pretty strict gateway that we don't let, you know, we kind of are trying to block our movie and protect it. And one of the things we're always looking for is anything that passes through into our movie has to surprise us in some way. It has to be a collision of tones that we were not expecting, you know, so that's why when it's weird, it's not weird for weird's sake, it's weird and it's the only way for us to feel this very true emotion. And, you know, and so the same with the fight scenes. The fight scenes aren't just fun fight scenes. It also has to make me cringe. They have to make me laugh. They may have to make me cry. You know, I, I think even though it feels like we're unedited and we put everything in the movie, like the movie has a very self-assuredness and it knows exactly what it needs. And so <laughs> we did cut a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we're really glad that you left the universe where people have hot dogs for fingers. Has making a film about multiverses and myriad versions of us made you ponder your own existences in other universes and what that would look like and who you want them to be? Yeah. One thing I sometimes say is that, like, this is not what I want them to be, but, like, it makes me grateful for, like, all these little miracles that got me to my life today. You know, when you just start thinking about, like, you drive down the street and you're, like, basically, like, one car swerve away from death (laughs) constantly. It's like, oh, what a miracle I'm alive. Or, like, I like to joke that I'm, like, one bad friend away from being such a bad person. You know, like, if I'd met, like, a really charismatic asshole in middle school I might be in jail right now yeah anyway that's a weird answer but it's sometimes what I think makes me grateful for the nice people who (laughs) um, helped make me nice (laughs) I do wish I was in a universe with a tail tails seem cool (laughs) you know like be able to grab stuff like a monkey tail anyway we just had the Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras here and there is a whole community of people who also wish that and manifest it on their bodies prosthetically. So I think I'm a few steps away. I'll see you there next year. That sounds great. Yeah, I think of it in terms of just like, I almost didn't become a filmmaker. I spent most of my life just internalizing this idea that it's obviously it's very competitive, very hard to, to actually break through in, in the filmmaking community. But then also, you know, early on, my mom would tell me, like, you should learn Mandarin. And I'm like, mom, I'm so bad at it. She's like, no, if you want want to do anything like this, they're not going to hire you here. You have to learn Mandarin, go back to Taiwan or go back to Hong Kong where our family is. And so like the idea of even making, becoming a filmmaker feels like a massive multiverse thing for me because I could be somewhere else uh, very miserable just doing a job I'm not good at. <laughs> so I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful that I found filmmaking, that it's nourished me into the filmmaker that I am now, you know. Well, Daniels, we're very grateful that we got to meet you in this universe where you did become filmmakers. Congratulations on the film and thanks for talking to Stop Everything. Thank Thank you you for having us. Daniel Kwan and Daniel Shinett, the Daniels Oscar Award winning directors of Everything Everywhere All at Once. That was them speaking to us in April 2022. Basically, we're saying we knew them before they were big. Yeah. Remember us, Daniels. Spoiler, 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 spoiler. It's an emergency. Okay, that's our sound effect for a spoiler alert. It is law now on Stop Everything. We'll always do that live (laughs) because we're actors, right? We are about to talk about 
the finale of The Last of Us. So if you have not watched it yet and you don't want us to ruin it for you, stop now, come back later. If you want to hear us talk about it, Welcome and please continue. Yeah, but if you're not up to date, pause, back away, but do revisit this episode. Let's just do a bit of a setup in terms of The Last of Us and where we find ourselves in the finale, right? So we've got handsome Pedro Pascal. He is on a cross country journey. He's delivering Ellie to where she's supposed to be, to a medical centre run by a resistance group. Um, Bella Ramsey plays Ellie and she's this scrappy teenager who is seemingly immune to a fungal infection that has just broken out. Caniston will human, not help you. Human caniston. <laughs> <laughs> and the promise is that if you find these people, we'll be able to tap into something with Ellie and find a cure. This is what the whole series has been leading up to. And Pedro Pascal, also known as Joel, has finally delivered on his promise. But things go wrong and things get tense, Beverly. Oh my gosh, do they ever. This is a melancholy episode, Ben. Mm. That's my overall feeling. And, you know, at the beginning of the episode, the energies between the two have shifted. Well, think about the episode before. Well, because, spoiler, 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 Ellie is recovering from the immense trauma of having almost been raped by a cult leader psychopath while a building burns around them and she has had to save herself by hacking him to death with a butcher's knife, which we all know has probably recently been used to cut up a human body. Mm, For other people to eat. Like, there's a lot going on in that one sequence. a lot going on and she is morose and understandably so. And think about us as viewers in that last episode. You just stay with Ellie for every slamming of that butcher's knife. It is a visceral, horrific moment. And I think it does what the show asks of us, which is there are so many shows out there about survival, about zombie apocalypses, but this is a show based on a video game, right? And in this video game, which I haven't played, but if you're playing this video game, you are either Joel or Ellie having to do these things. And like no other show I've seen, it places us in that position. Like you want to survive, this is what you're going to need to endure and this is what's going to be asked of you. And you feel it. You feel it as you watch it. It's a first-person shooter perspective in some ways. Um, Just to go back to the vibe for a minute. So Ellie is deeply traumatised, quiet, and she has normally been the one to pull Joel, who is usually the quiet, taciturn one. But this time... Joel, he's being real dad energy here, the way he's trying to cheer her up. He's like, come on, come on, tell me a pun. And he's really chatting it up. And he's being so sweet. He's talking about his dead daughter. You know, that takes a lot for him. It just Mm. shows how much his bond with Ellie has grown. And the thing that I like about The Last of Us and any good show like this is that they take time for the quiet moments. Mm. And when they take time for the quiet moments, the horrific moments, the contrast is ever greater. There's a beautiful discovery of that giraffe in the clearing, which is a moment of wonder. When I saw that, I gasped out loud. It was so beautiful. Apparently, that's a really pivotal moment in the video game for people who have played it. Like, they talk about the giraffe sequence. And I didn't know this, but maybe this explains your wonder, my wonder, the audience's wonder watching it. That's a real giraffe. Like, they filmed that. That is not CGI. It's a combination of a virtual effects stage, scenery, and location shoot 
with a real giraffe from Calgary Zoo. And so the wonder, I think, that you can see breaking up their faces, we all have that childlike wonder of being able to feed a giraffe. How mm. extraordinary. It's like the Brachiosaurus scene in Jurassic Park. It, that giraffe helps Ellie come alive again, right? Mm. That's a really pivotal moment of emotional awakening, and she has this joy. And then... They come to the place that they've been looking for all along, which is the hospital. You know, I've got to say, all along, I've been dreading that because I Mm. just thought... This isn't going to end well. No, this is the last of us. Is she going to be okay after that? And we realize very quickly that she's not okay. And Joel makes a really big choice to save her. And I think the moment where he's going through and just... Stacking up the body count. Annihilating people. That is like the most game-like moment of the series, I think. It's the most game-like moment of the series, but it also puts us in the position of the gamer because the thesis of that game is that you're going to do a gaming shoot-em-up, but you're going to feel culpable and morally compromised while you're doing what you have to. And think of what Joel has to do. He has to slam through bodies to save a young child. That seems morally crisp, but these people are trying to save humanity. Yeah. And that's a really, really tough thing to like sit in those competing truths. When he shoots the doctor in the operating theater, I just thought, God, you know, there are no medical schools in this world. No. <laughs> when you kill a doctor in this world, you are destroying a, such a valuable resource and body of knowledge. So the question, of course, is. Does Joel saving one individual who he cares for deeply on a personal level justify the carnage? And then we come to the end of the episode and Ellie, you know, with her wisdom, that like preternatural wisdom that she has, turns to Joel and says, swear to me that everything you said to me actually is true because he's concocted a story Mm. to explain to her when she wakes up why and how she's there and not in the Fireflies Hospital. Which brings me to my question for you, Beverly. So here's a tough one. Help me out. I think that The Last of Us is a show about parenting and failure and how you cannot protect your kids from the horrors of the world. Obviously, this is a world that's like ours, but it's a zombie apocalypse breakout world. But also think about this episode. This episode didn't actually contain zombies at all. The zombies are the easy kill, right? We kill them, we're like, thank God, that's fine. It's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Here, it's really, really difficult to know what the right thing is to do, but I think that Joel, Pedro Pascal's character, kind of does what a parent does, which is the only thing you can do. It doesn't make you feel virtuous, but it's to protect your child. But as you say in that final scene, when he has to lie to her, Is that protecting a child from the truth or is that failing the child for not being able to give them agency? Well, the thing that I come back to is that Ellie was not told going into the surgery that she would die coming out of it. She didn't have the choice. She didn't get to know everything on the table and then make the choice. Yes, I willingly put my life on the line to save humankind. If that choice had been given to her and she said, yeah, I'm going to do it, and she might. You don't know right? Uh, I would say that's a totally different outcome. But because we know that she wasn't given that choice, she wasn't told, that I think pushes it more to the side of Joel. But I'm not saying that I think that is the right thing. I don't know. See, this Mm. this is the impossible quandary. And I think you're right. To a certain extent, The Last of Us is about exactly what you just said, just like everything, everywhere, all at once, Mm. isn't really about Rakakuni and (laughs) And all of those things. It's about family and love. 
Yeah, I think you're on the money there. I think then now this sets up into season two, this question, does Ellie choose to believe? Because we know they're making decisions there. She is choosing to believe him out of faith and loyalty and everything that they have shared together. In season two, how will that play out? It's a little bit like end of season one of Hacks and the email. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very different show. But it's a classic kind of setup. How is this going to lead us into season two? How is this going to cause conflict or tension? Will this be the secret that gets unearthed? How far into the future will they jump in the show? Who knows? But how interesting that a TV show that's ostensibly about zombies and the apocalypse and shooting people to get to where you need to go. The big cliffhanger is actually an emotional one between not a parent and a child, but a parental figure and a child and trying to figure out what is the way forward? I think it's really interesting that this show doesn't leave you feeling like triumphant for them getting out of a really tricky situation. It leaves you feeling like a little bit hollow, quite violated, kind of like, what would I have done in that situation? And that's what I think the success of this show is. Because if you're trying to say, let's look at what survival in a world gone mad looks like, there are no easy options. And there are no easy options for parents trying to do the right thing in a world gone mad. Benjamin Law, you're so wise. (laughs) It's true. I can't say it, but I'll let you say it. (laughs) Well, we have held hands. We have cried tears together. We have... Shot our way out of a zombie hospital. Experienced joy vicariously through everything, everywhere, all at once. We take you on a journey, everybody. And if you want to join us on this journey week after week, guess what? Follow us on the ABC Listen app tap the heart, find all the previous episodes and other great podcasts from ABC RN. I would like to recommend one that has an excellent title, What the Duck? What the Duck? From ABC Science. If you're listening in Canada, hello Canada, we're still with you. We still love you. Find us on every other podcast app out there. We are on there. And we're not on this journey alone. We are supported by a crew of cheerleaders, including our producer Sarah Mashman, sound engineer Tim Jenkins, and executive producer Tom Wright. We produce this show on the lands of the Eora and Kula Nations and on the land of the Muanina people from country around Nipaluna. We'll see you next week. I need to hydrate. I've shed so many tears. <laughs> oh, I've got no saline left in my body. Oh my gosh. Gee whiz. Okay. Bye. See you later. They talk to us about their now seven-time Academy Award-winning movie last year. Let's... Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. I usually have my Do Not Disturb on. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.